You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 4th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. And welcome to The Briefing, broadcasting to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. Coming up, Benjamin Netanyahu is expected to begin an unprecedented third term as Israel's Prime Minister. Will it be a fresh start or more of the same? Also ahead on today's show, this man gives his strongest hint yet that he'll stand in the 2024 presidential election. And now, in order to make our country successful and safe and glorious, I will very, very, very probably do it again, Okay, Very, very, very probably. We'll have the latest on Trump and the US midterms from Washington, D.C., plus the day's business news, a fashion roundup, and Andrew Muller's take on the week's less serious stories. We learned that chocolatier's Mars Wrigley had embarked upon some diligent market research, which had concluded that a great many people do not care for the bounty bar, and that it will forthwith be banished, which will make this a difficult year for bounty hunters. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. Pierre Lapid, Israel's Prime Minister, has conceded defeat to Benjamin Netanyahu in the country's fifth election in four years. Netanyahu, chair of the Conservative Likud Party, is preparing to begin an unprecedented third term in office. Well, Alison Kaplan-Sommer is a journalist for Haaretz in Tel Aviv. She's had a very busy week, but I'm pleased to say that she joins me now. Alison, what were the numbers in Tuesday's election? Well, the final numbers um, is that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's um, uh, right-wing bloc, which includes his Likud party, uh, which got 32 seats in the Knesset, won 64 of the 120 seats um, of the Israeli parliament, which is a a definitive majority um, he had been striving for. And the polls had shown that it would be a reach for him to get a simple majority of 61. So 64 is considered um, a major accomplishment on his part and will allow him to comfortably form uh, a government uh, coalition um, without presumably too many concessions on his part in uh, in assembling uh, the number of partners necessary to rule. Well, tell us about that coalition. Has it been signed off yet? How difficult were the negotiations? What's the result? It hasn't been officially signed off yet. It's going to probably only officially happen uh, after the weekend is over. But it's uh, it's pretty clear who his partners are going to be and who he wants them to be. It's going to be, um, you know, the phenomenon of this election, the uh, the far right uh, religious Zionism party, um, which uh, is is going to have 15 seats, which makes it the third largest party in the country. Um, uh, Netanyahu's traditional partners, which are the ultra orthodox uh, parties. And uh, so, you know, unlike uh, many recent uh, Israeli government coalition, which has sort of relied on some small parties um, to tip the balance, this one is going to be a a relatively small group of parties, um, uh, you know, with a a large number of seats. So it will be a very right wing, very religious, but relatively stable coalition. And no Arab representation. 
No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, uh, the the far right uh, partners wouldn't even allow Netanyahu to consider any kind of uh, Arab partnership. Uh, the last government is going to be viewed, I think, historically as an anomaly in the fact that it had an Arab uh, party in the coalition. Let's just talk a little bit more about the religious Zionists, because they did have a significant role to play in this victory. And I wondered about their links with a terror group. Um, well, you know, d- defining the, the terror group, the uh, uh, religious Zionist party, Zionism party is really a, a compendium of two parties linked together. And the party you're referring to is called Otsma Yehudit, or the Jewish Power Party. It's led by Idmar Ben-Gvir, who um, is a disciple of the late uh, Rabbi Meir Kahana, who um, who was a was a rabble rouser who uh, you know advocated uh, illegal means and and advocated violence. Uh, ben Gvir was a, a lawyer, an attorney who represented many Jewish uh, terrorists, and he himself um, had been arrested and had a um, a record of uh, of disrupted and uh, disruptive and provocateur uh, behavior, which is ironic considering that the post that he is aiming for in this new government is going to be police minister. Well, Netanyahu himself is on trial for corruption. How significant? Is that will it be dropped now? Well, it's it's extremely significant. I mean, there's no way it can be instantly dropped. But the reason that everybody expects um, Netanyahu to embrace this far right religious coalition instead of perhaps trying to moderate his government by reaching over to his left side. Um, towards the center, for example, bringing in Benny Gantz's party. One of the reasons he's not expected to do that is that these parties that make up this majority who are completely loyal to him presumably are going to propose some form of legislation which will either soften or eliminate the implications of his current uh, trial. Uh, one uh, proposal by uh, Betzal Smotrich, who is with Itamar Ben-Gvir, the, uh, the other head of the Religious Zionism Party, already during the campaign formally pro- pro- proposed legislation which would eliminate um, a significant number of the charges that uh, that Netanyahu is uh, is facing in this trial, the, the breach of public uh, trust charge. And if that happens, then, uh, you know, presumably uh, Netanyahu could, uh, could be getting off the hook. I mean, many pundits believe that his entire political strategy in this campaign was aimed at getting himself out of the legal hot water. Mm. And what does his win mean for Israel? I mean, will there be any kind of change of direction? Um, I think there's definitely going to be a change in direction. Uh, this uh, government over the past year was trying to uh, to make some reforms uh, in, in the religion and state area in order to liberalize. Those will be rolled back, if not completely reversed. Um, huge budgets are going to go to ultra-Orthodox uh, schools and yeshivas and places of study. So that's going to be on the, on the domestic front, the, a socially conservative um, agenda which will reverse again the trend of the of the past year and there's going to be many diplomatic implications as well i believe uh, the return of netanyahu is going to um reverse uh, what uh, Prime Minister Yair Lapid has been trying to uh, build over the over the past year, and I think there's going to be some many significant uh, changes there as well within foreign policy. I mean, particularly for Ukraine, will there be perhaps more support coming from Israel? 
More support for Ukraine? Absolutely not. Uh, Netanyahu has a history of uh, close cooperation with Vladimir Putin. I don't know how, uh, you know, over uh, how visible it's going to be, but it's definitely his relationship with Putin um, is going to probably mitigate any kind of assistance and and help that uh, that Israel has shown Ukraine so far, which has been uh, has been already limited. But uh, it's expected that that will uh, that will not happen under uh, under Netanyahu, who um, I think values uh, much more cooperation operation with Putin when it comes to uh, Israel's borders and, uh, and and its northern border. Um, there's the Lebanon uh, maritime border deal that uh, Yair Lapid cut that uh, Netanyahu said during the campaign that he did not intend to honor. So that's going to be a sticking point. And um, any chance of uh, some sort of uh, Iran deal happening, um, uh, Lapid's strategy was more to uh, try to influence the direction of the deal. And I think um, uh, Netanyahu's uh, approach will be much more confrontational when it comes to Iran uh, and in general when it comes to uh, dealing with uh, the United States and European countries. Alison, this political turmoil in Israel feels like it's been going on forever and, and the past week has been particularly exhausting. Can you tell us about the experience of covering this? Um, it's been exhausting. Um, I think, you know, this was very unexpected. Listen, um, I think most uh, most reasonable people in Israel are not so happy with the uh, results of this election, even if one supports Netanyahu government, which many people do. I think people are nervous about the influence um, that is going to be wielded by the far right extremist wing after having so many seats and, and, and so much power here. If there is any silver lining to this cloud, it is the fact that this is at least a definitive result. And for four years, you know, everything's been a caretaker government, um, not being able to reach a budget, not being able to make any long-term plans because the government was so unstable and everything was temporary. While many people are unhappy with the results of this election, at least there are results. At least there will there there is some sort of definitive result. And, um, and uh, you know, presumably that will lend itself to, uh, to some form of stability, though stability uh, heading in what direction we don't know about. Alison, thank you very much indeed. That was Alison Kaplan-Sommer in Tel Aviv. Now, here's Monocle 24's Carlotta Rabello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has accused the Kremlin of resorting to energy terrorism following Russian attacks on the Ukrainian supply network. Zelensky added that large-scale Russian missile attacks had left millions of people without power. Teams representing Brazil's president-elect Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva's and the outgoing leader Jair Bolsonaro have been discussing the country's political transition. Both sides said the meeting was fruitful and that they were confident of a smooth transfer of power. And U.S. Congress is reportedly split on whether to make daylight saving time permanent. The U.S. Senate has already voted to put a stop to the twice-annual changing of clocks, which supporters say will lead to brighter afternoons and more economic activity. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Many thanks, Carlotta. Now, the United States clearly has more important things on its mind than whether to abolish the changing of clocks. Voters from across the country will cast their ballots in the midterms on Tuesday and the outcome will determine who controls the House of Representatives and the US Senate during Joe Biden's last two years of his first term as president. On top of all of that, Donald Trump has given a strong hint that he intends to stand in the 2024 presidential election. Well, Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Chermack joins me now. Uh, Chris, what did Trump have to say in Iowa? 
Well, Georgina, so uh, Donald Trump held a rally in Iowa last night. This is the state that always holds the first primary for the presidential elections, you know, the decision for which would between the parties for which candidate they will pick. So there was significance there. And then in addition to that, he, of course, in very Trump parlance, did not announce an actual uh, campaign, but said that he would, ver quote, very, very, very probably run for president in 2024. He's This is a line that he has said repeatedly throughout the campaign in these midterms. He's been campaigning quite a bit for different candidates across the country. Um, and many people, frankly, expect he will be announcing shortly after the midterm congressional elections are over. This is also also sort of by design. Some others, um, you know, people, the Republicans have sort of quietly urged him not to announce before the midterms, but to wait until afterwards in order to keep the spotlight a little bit away from him but until these congressional elections are over. Mm, I see that time has not improved his grasp of grammar. Um, will he still be at liberty? I mean, his, his legal problems are mounting. Can he stay out of prison to contest an election? Well, this is a very good question, Georgina. Um, actually, I, I hate to put this in political terms, but of course, everything here is political at this point. Many people are expecting part of the reason he would announce quite soon is in order to announce before any kind of charges are, br are brought, because that would politicize those charges even further. Um, so that is one of the questions. But yes, that said, there are two current investigations, key investigations ongoing against uh, Donald Trump. One is on the January 6th insurrection and his role in that. And the other, of course, is on his uh, mishandling of documents, keeping documents um, from the White House once he left office, bringing them to Mar-a-Lago Mar where they were seized. So those two investigations are ongoing. That said, as well, as amazing as this will sound, Georgina, there is no, there is nothing in the U.S. Constitution that says you cannot run for president from jail. That is extraordinary. <laughs> Let's wrench the spotlight from Trump for a moment and look at the bigger picture. What's the state of play ahead of the midterms? So I have to say, Georgina, the mood in this country right now is pretty grim, to put it simply. The economy is, of course, absolutely dominating everything at the moment. It is the top issue for most voters. It is the biggest concern. Inflation is the biggest concern. If you couple that with history, history also says that whichever party is in power tends to lose votes in um in the midterm congressional elections, so two years after the presidential elections are held, then it's a grim mood, particularly for Democrats, of course. But yes, that's the general mood is 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 negative. I would add to that, of course, that there are some major fears of political violence here, particularly after uh, the attack on Paul Pelosi, the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, on Friday. He was released, by the way, from hospital yesterday, so good news there. But that has, of course, sparked a lot of concern among voters um, about potential violence uh, ahead in these elections. There's also been sporadic reports of voter intimidation, things like that ahead of the midterms. Uh, also, as people are already voting, there's early voting going on now. So yeah, generally not a particularly positive mood ahead of Tuesday. Why do the midterms matter? 
So a couple of reasons that they matter. One is the the obvious every year, and that is that this is for con- control of the House of Representatives and the Senate. So which if, for example, Republicans were to win, they would essentially put a stop to Joe Biden's agenda for the next two years. This is the way that Congress works these days. Parties do not work together very well anymore. There is not much cross-party legislation. So it would put a stop to most of Joe Biden's key priorities for the next two years. The other thing I think to say, particularly about this election that is important, is it comes two years after 2020, after Donald Trump's allegations, false allegations that the vote was rigged. It comes after the January 6th, 2021 insurrection on the Capitol. Um, So you could argue that it is a referendum on that as well. But as I said earlier, really, it's not an issue that has dominated this campaign as much as you might expect. And what are the key issues then? So uh, the key issues, one is, of course, as I said, the economy is top. Uh, Absolutely. Inflation, that is something that all the candidates are running on at the moment. Democrats have sort of been forced to pivot in order to talk about their record on the economy and what they would do to bring inflation down. Below that, there are a number of sort of second tier issues that even a month ago or two months ago would have been much higher on the agenda for Democrats, particularly that, of course, is abortion. Um, After the Roe v. Wade decision or the decision abolishing Roe v. Wade uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court ending a federal right to abortion, this is still something that is very much driving Democrats. To the polls, um, climate change is still a big issue for Democrats, although it is not a very big issue for Republicans. On the Republican side, another big issue that many candidates have been using to attack Democrats is crime and immigration. Crime, it has to be said, has risen here uh, to to a degree, um, also arguably because of the pandemic and some of the, the impacts that that has had. So that is also an issue that has been very high in sort political ads and raising fear ahead of these elections as well. Uh, And finally, Chris, what are the polls saying? What do we expect the results to be? Well, so as I say, the polls really have changed over the last month, two months. So if you'd asked me a month ago, uh, two months ago, the polls were looking quite good for Democrats. They were buoyant. Uh, they, they even had a potential to take the House of Representatives or keep the House of Representatives as well as the Senate. As the economy has soured, the polls have soured accordingly for Democrats. Right now, looking at Tuesday, Uh, Most people expect that the Republicans will comfortably hold on to or retake, I should say, the House of Representatives. Uh, There may be as much as a 20 to 30 seat swing uh, among the House of Representatives. The Senate is still more up in the air. There is still a chance that the Democrats could hold on to their razor thin majority in the Senate. It's basically split 50-50 at the moment. That could still happen. Some key races to look at to see whether they are able to hold on are Pennsylvania. That's where I'm going to be on election night because it is one of the most fascinating races. Um, But also Georgia is a key race and Arizona and Nevada are also some key races to look at, particularly for whether Democrats can hold on to at least the Senate on Tuesday. Georgina. I see quite why you say the mood is grim there, Chris. Thank you very much indeed. That was Monocle's Washington correspondent, Chris Chermak. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24.
Well, let's get the latest business news now with Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Uh, Ewan, many thanks for joining us. It's been a difficult day for many staff at Twitter. Tell us more. Yeah, today's the day that Twitter plans to fire staff. We understand it could be as many as half of the company's employees getting their notice today. That could be some 3,700 staff. Now, Elon Musk is uh, planning to make good on his uh, plan to slash costs at the social media company. And remember, he bought this for $44 billion last month. The company says it will inform affected staff by 9 a.m. San Francisco time. That's about uh, four hours from now. Though uh, a look on Twitter itself makes it clear that a number of staff have have already been told uh, the bad news. The company says that we recognise that this will impact a number of individuals who've made valuable contributions to Twitter, but this action is unfortunately necessary to ensure the company's success going forward. In the US, the company is facing a lawsuit, a class action lawsuit's been filed in San Francisco. Uh, it alleges that the company is not giving uh, staff enough notice, and that is a violation of federal and Californian law. The Twitter Twitter's not immediately responded uh, to that lawsuit. Uh, in uh, the UK, a number of uh, Twitter staff have been joining trade unions in an effort to better protect their rights. Uh, the boss of Prospect, uh, a UK union, said that Twitter is treating people appallingly. It's calling on the government to ensure that Twitter doesn't become a digital P&O, referring to the ferry company that uh, very abruptly sacked 800 people earlier this year. But yeah, lots of job losses uh, coming at Twitter today. And there's also a wider chill in the tech sector at the moment, isn't there? Yeah, US uh, ride-hailing company Lyft is to cut one in eight of its staff as it tries to cope with the difficult economic uh, backdrop. Uh, rather less dramatic news from elsewhere in Silicon Valley, but even the big boys are starting to hire, uh, starting to freeze hiring. Amazon says it's to pause new corporate workers, citing an uncertain economy. Worth pointing out, of course, that Amazon hugely expanded uh, during the pandemic, uh, taking on uh, huge numbers of workers right across the world. But uh, at the moment, uh, that's uh, hiring is certainly on pause for a short period of time. Uh, it says we anticipate keeping this pause in place for the next few months. Uh, Bloomberg understands that Apple is also pausing hiring for many jobs outside of research and development. That's an escalation of an existing plan to reduce budgets uh, heading into next year. So after this enormous uh, boom in hiring for the tech sector, they've had a very, very good pandemic. Uh, a lot of companies are just uh, putting a pause on that and just waiting to see how the economy pans out. Ewan, thank you very much indeed. That was Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. And you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. We're going to get a roundup of stories making news on the catwalk now with Monocle's fashion editor, Natalie Teodosi. Natalie, thanks so much for, for coming in. Now, Kingdom of Dreams is a film that's really making a splash on Sky at the moment. It's a new documentary. It looks back at the 1990s and the early 2000s and the birth of fashion conglomerates. What is it telling us that's new? So uh, the documentary is looking back at a time when these fashion couture houses were sm much smaller business and uh, people like Francois uh, Pinot and uh, Mr. Arnaud of LVMH were starting to buy them up and build uh, LVMH and Caring, which are now such powerhouses. So you get to really see the birth of these fashion luxury conglomerates and also go back and revisit some of the most incredible shows in fashion history by Alexander McQueen, John Galliano, and see how these creative talents helped build these businesses. And also there's the darker side of, of it all, 
where you see the tension between the creatives and the the business side of the industry, how the the, the two work together, and also the toll that it had on on some of those mm. designers. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned McQueen because in this documentary, it's basically saying his first show was a flop. But of course, in hindsight, you look back and you see that McQueen was this huge name. But as you mentioned, that tension uh, in the end really wasn't good for him and, and he was not able to survive it. Exactly. I think back back at, in those days as well, fashion criticism had a lot more power and those early shows by Alexander McQueen were really heavily criticised. But now, in hindsight, we can we can see what an impact he had on the industry, and uh, his business continues to thrive. Yeah, despite his his very sad end. Well, talking about those big conglomerates like Caring, uh, Tom Ford is up for sale, and Caring's one of the bidders. Exactly. So Tom Ford is actually also seen um, is a, plays a big part in Kingdom of Dreams because he in the nineties he played a really big part in reviving Gucci, and now Caring is uh, one of the top contenders to buy Tom Ford. So it would be a full circle moment because he worked under Caring uh, back uh, back in in his Gucci days, which was called the Gucci Group at the time. So um, he's one of the top contenders, but also Estee Lauder is another one. And uh, they're meant to be in talks since the summer. Uh, The deal for his company is valued at uh, $3 billion which goes to show what he was able to build as well. He had a hard time, I think, also dealing with the pressure in the 90s of uh, working for Gucci, but he took a break and came back with his own business and has built a really interesting uh, company that is particularly strong in the beauty and fragrance Mm. sectors. I think it would be really interesting to look at the intersection between fashion and uh, mental health because there does seem to be such a kind of negative crossover there. Absolutely. I think historically it has been the 90s and the 2000s was when um, a lot of uh, issues were were happening behind the scenes because of the pressure that was put on these creatives. But at least now there is a lot more open conversations around it and hopefully uh, some improvements made. I think we're moving a little bit away from this idea of the creative genius or the one single creative director that... Um, McQueen and Tom Ford and John Galliano were that, that was the label they were given. Now there's a lot more focus on also the artisans and the pattern cutters and all the people that create the clothes behind the scenes. And instead of just appointing a single creative director, sometimes people focus on um, design collectives and uh, show that uh, creating a collection and running a fashion house is really a group effort. So mm. it's a healthier way of seeing it. As you say, Tom Ford took a break, basically went on a very he long did. holiday. <laughs> uh, let's look at holiday retail because Louis Vuitton has just opened a new restaurant in uh, Chengdu in China that's called The Hall. And there are many other kind of little pop-ups and, and holiday kind of occasions happening across the fashion world. Exactly. The Hall is one of the latest openings and apparently it's already booked out for the the rest of the year and Louis Vuitton will keep bringing uh, Michelin star chefs from China and abroad every six months. But uh, Yves Saint Laurent also had um, opened a sushi restaurant during Paris Fashion Week uh, a few months ago and Dior is preparing um, to take over Harrods. 
uh, for the next few months, uh, starting with the holiday season, and they will host pop-up shops, a cafe, and an exhibition. And the whole project is called The Wonderful World of Dior. So it's this idea of brands having to think beyond just selling product and really entertain customers mm. um, and make more more of an effort when it comes to shopping. When we talk of holidays, we also think of cruises, but uh, a cruise show is really nothing to do with a ship, is it? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Cruise shows were originally called that because uh, brands started um, designing clothes for, well, of people that would go on cruises around this time of year and for the holidays. Uh, so the name kind of stuck but what it really is, is uh, cruise collections are bigger commercial collections that drop between uh, the, uh, the winter and the summer main collections. And so we're looking at Dior Men's? Dior Men's is going to have uh, a big cruise show in Cairo and Chanel is going to Senegal to show uh, their main collections while Celine is going to be in LA. So as well as uh, big commercial collections, this, uh, these shows have become marketing opportunities of seasons for these brands to travel to a new destination, integrate with a new culture and uh, create even more spectacles and, and grab people's attention. Excellent. Natalie, thank you very much. That was our fashion editor, Natalie Teodosi, and you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. And finally on today's programme, we join Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, for his take on what the past seven days have taught us. We learned this week what Russia is really fighting for in Ukraine, and apologies to any long-suffering parents presently experiencing symptoms triggered by the music playing behind this bit. If it is any consolation, we learned that Russia is broadly on your side, and we learned this via a sensible, thoughtful, measured, and in no way completely unhinged statement from Russian MP Alexander Kinstein. Mr. Kinstein, we learned, is chair of the Duma Committee on Information Policy and Communications, and, we must be clear on this, not in any respect a paranoid halfwit. For we learned that Peppa Pig, cheerful, animated, porcine preschooler, is, in fact... the squadron leader of a psychological operations commando unit intent on turning your children gay. We turn now to some of Mr. Kinstein's logical, sober and not even slightly ridiculous statement as will be voiced by Monocle 24's logical, sober and not even slightly ridiculous statement's desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Peppa Pig, seemingly a very well-known cartoon. In one episode, a polar bear is drawing a portrait of her family and says, I live with my mommy and my other mommy. LGBT is nowadays a tool of hybrid war. Thanks as always for taking the time, Fernando. We know you're busy with the hybrid war and whatnot. This, of course, was not the first time we had learned of the chilling and subversive subtexts of Peppa Pig. A couple of months back, Federico Moliconi... Molly Coney, 
culture spokesman of the Brothers of Italy, also invade against Peppa Pig's polar bear neighbours, solemnly, earnestly and not remotely idiotically declaring that we cannot accept this gender indoctrination. And his party are now running the country, which is heartwarming. But we should remember, of course, that Peppa Pig did have one staunch ally she could always count on among European conservatives. I was, well, it's, it's I was a bit hazy what I would find at Peppa Pig World, uh, but I loved it. Peppa Pig World is, is very much my kind of place. Who will speak for Peppa Pig now? Mm. I can't wait Interesting. to see where this goes. That was a rhetorical question. We don't really care all that much. We also learned this week, and we think this just about works, of a mutiny on the bounty. Ship's company! I'm taking command of this ship. Mr. Fry, I'll have the keys to the arms chest. Not that kind. Indeed, we learned that this particular revolt was not against Lieutenant William Bly of the Royal Navy, later Governor of New South Wales, where he was eventually on the receiving end of another insurrection, but we digress, but against a chocolate-covered coconut confection. We learned that chocolatiers Mars Wrigley had embarked upon some diligent market research slash pre-Christmas attention-seeking, delete as applicable, which had concluded that a great many people do not care for the bounty bar, and that it will forthwith be banished from the celebration's mixed chocolate tubs traditionally brought to your yuletide lunch by relatives who did their Christmas shopping at the petrol station. Which will make this a difficult year for... Bounty Hunters. In British politics, meanwhile... No, don't. No, no, no. Please don't. Don't interfere. Oh, God, Andrew, no. We learned of the next step in the glorious career of Matt Hancock, COVID-19-era Secretary of State for Health, one-time star of very arguably the least interesting sex scandal in British political history, now disregarded backbencher. We learned that tending to the concerns of his constituents in West Suffolk is not quite sufficient to fill his days, and that he has accordingly signed on for the next season of tedious reality programme, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. This will, of course, be a radically different milieu for anyone who has come up in British politics to explore, as one of those environments is a merciless bear pit whose wretched inhabitants are compelled to commit serial indignities until such time as a bored or irritated public votes to eject them, and the other is a game show. Champagne satire. We learned, however, that Hancock had reasons for embarking to the badlands of Australia, reasons far, far nobler than the 300 grand he is reported to be trousering for his participation. In a newspaper editorial, Hancock kicked off by declaring that he had not, quote, lost my marbles or had one too many drinks, a clarification traditionally vouchsafed by people who have lost their marbles or had one too many drinks. Hancock insisted that he was somehow doing it for democracy, as will now be read by Monocle 24's entirely plausible justifications desk chief, Carlotta Ribello. 
politicians like me must go where the people are, particularly those who are politically disengaged. We must wake up and embrace popular culture. Rather than looking down on reality TV, we should see it for what it is, a powerful tool to get our message heard by younger generations. While we will at this time rise above swinging at the powerful tool Freudian slip contained therein, we will not rise above relaying the somewhat equivocal reaction of the deputy chairman of Hancock's own local Conservative Party Association, Andy Drummond, which will also be read by Carlotta as she's sitting here anyway. I'm looking forward to him eating a kangaroo's penis. Quote me. <laughs> you can quote me on that. And indeed, we have. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Thank you very much to Andrew. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Rhys James, our researcher was Emily Sands, and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. And The Briefing's back on Monday at the same time, but I'll be here with much more news and analysis across the weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thank you for listening.